Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. Our guest today is Jeff Edgers. Jeff is the Washington Post's national arts reporter, where he's written about the decline of the electric guitar. He's profiled David Letterman, Bill Murray, Norm MacDonald, and Jay Leno. He also wrote a 5,000-word oral history of the 1986 Run DMC rap rock smash Walk This Way. Dutton will publish his book-length history of that revolutionary moment early in 2019, and I must say it's one of my favorite oral histories I've ever read. Prior to joining the Post, Edgers was a staff arts reporter for the Boston Globe for 11 years and a staff arts reporter for the Raleigh News and Observer. He's also written four children's books, including Who Were the Beatles and Who is Stan Lee. Jeff is now the host of the brand new must-listen podcast series, Edge of Fame. It's a co-production of WBUR-FM, Boston's NPR station, and The Washington Post. This week, Jeff's guest on Edge of Fame is Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, Perfect timing with Jimmy, of course, hosting the Oscars on Sunday night. Jeff's proud to have played basketball with Michael Bolton, and he made a feature-length documentary on his irrational attempt to reunite the kinks. And as my daughter Isabel would say, Jeff, that's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me here. It's really an honor. Thank you. Well, I'm thrilled that you're here. And I want to start with your uh, full-length documentary on your irrational attempt to reunite the kinks. Um, Because as I understand it, in that documentary, you kind of trash the Eagles. And I want to know, first of all, what did you say about them? Uh, I think I was uh, uh, talking about how frustrated I was that there were so many groups that were not as worthy as the Kinks getting reunited. And uh, at one point in that scene, I think I was cleaning my gutters for some reason while I went on this uh, kind of monologue about it. And um, I complained about the the Eagles. I, I didn't really say that much about them, but there was a disgusted look on my face and I was reaching into a gutter. So um, that was it was <laughs> so kind the of symbolism. Understood. The symbolism was there. So it wasn't quite like the dude in the big Lebowski. Right. It wasn't that bad. No, and it wasn't. But uh, to me, the Eagles reunion had represented everything that was sort of wrong with reuniting, um, which was later confirmed when I wrote a story on them, you know, and uh, and then they lied to me. <laughs> Well, I want to ask you about that. So that's what's so interesting to me. So you were assigned to do a Kennedy Center Honors profile on the Eagles, and they had heard that you had criticized them in the documentary. So I'm curious how you were able to navigate that difficult terrain of getting the Eagles to open up to you after trashing them in your documentary. Well, first of all, um, I mean, the number one reason I was able to make that work is because when they're a PR guy complained and said that they wouldn't do the article with me. My editor, Christine, uh, she said, well, sorry, you can't pick your your writers. I mean, we should all be so lucky in this universe of, you know, uh, celebrity reporting to have an editor who says, sorry, if you want, you know, if you're going to have a profile done, it's going to be by this guy. And he says that um, he wants to write a good story on you. And by that, I mean, like a, a real story. And so that's what that's how that worked. Do I think Don Henley like saw that clip? I don't know if he wasted the time to see it. Um, But, you know, basically I did my normal thing, which is I called everyone and anyone who would talk to me about the Eagles. And I just worked as a reporter. You know, I I, I tried to put it out of my head that there was this clip on YouTube where I was, um, you know, uh, insulting my subject. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, you are, for, for my money, you're one of the best profile writers we have. I mean, you're just a master at it. And what I love about your approach, and, and you hinted at it in that answer, is that you're never content with a one-hour interview. You spend months talking to your subjects. You immerse yourself yourself in their lives. You follow them on their jobs. You watch TV with them, take road trips with them. Uh, you interview everybody around them, uh, bosses, colleagues, their parents, distant relatives. And so I want to ask you about that, about that approach and how you make that work. Um, it, it, it's, it has an obsessiveness about it, but it, but you actually make it work for yourself. And so how, how do you actually go about that? When you have a profile subject, um, what's the first thing you do and, and how do you approach them? Well, my first hope is that, uh, you know, the, the, the greatest uh, combination you can get is a profile subject who's really relevant and interesting and uh, needs to be written about, but also is not like putting out a book in three weeks. So I, I generally, uh, and now that the post, I think, is in a different position than it was in five years ago, perhaps, um, you know, if I get uh, a request to do a story on somebody who might be interesting and they say, oh, the New York Times is doing one too, or, um, oh yeah, we want to have this out before their thing comes out, I usually just turn that down. So, you know, I just recently did a story on a profile of Ava DuVernay, Mm -hmm. whose uh, Wrinkle in Time is coming out March 9th. And that, you know, there'll be a million stories about Wrinkle in Time. I first reached out to her a year and maybe two months ago. And I said, I want to do a story on you. And uh, Netflix, which was about to broadcast her documentary, 13th, wanted me to do it right then. And I talked to Ava and I just said, look, your story needs to be done right. And it can't be done right as part of the normal promotional process. And uh, it needs to be done right. And so I must have spent eight, I must have visited with her eight times over that year. Mm. And we finally ran that story. And, um, you know, I just built up trust with her and she eventually started getting me contacts. I started calling people on my own. It's just work. I mean, it's really, I, I really appreciate you saying such nice things about my profile of writing, but you know, I am not that special. All I do is I call a million people and I keep trying to build and build on those people because, you know, sometimes the the guy on the, you know, like the 10th on the bench is more interesting than, uh, you know, Scottie Pippen when you're doing your Michael Jordan story. And right. so you really have to work hard to find those people and, and, and also be willing to cut other people out, even if they're famous. Now, Jeff, have you had an, have you had a profile subject who has just been absolutely uninterested or disinterested in cooperating at all? And then through just sort of circling around them as you describe and talking to a lot of people around them, then get them to come around and, and then cooperate with you? Has that ever occurred? Well, um, I think that something clicks a lot of times where the subject eventually realizes what I'm doing and that um, it, it really doesn't help to like put up a barrier. So, you know, there are, there are people though, I mean, like Tom Hanks, who is such a wonderful person, he has a, a, a system for how he does pro he has rules, I guess I'd say, you know, I did a Tom Hanks profile. I liked it, but it wasn't ingenious. I got to sit with him in a hotel room for two hours. He would have given me three, you know, maybe we had two and a half hours, but like I asked him, I said, I'd love to talk to your brother about you. He's a professor somewhere. And he said, uh, you know what? I, my family doesn't do interviews. Really? Uh, but what about now? You know, um, no, they, they really don't. And so I had to figure out a way to tell that story that would be decent without being able to get access to a whole area of his life that was, you know, very important. 
you know, I'd also say that Vanessa Hudgens, who uh, my daughter was so thrilled I was writing a profile of her because she remembered from a high school musical. Everybody around her said I couldn't talk to her mom. And I thought, well, what is it like when you're a kid, uh, you know, star and how do you avoid making them like a monster? So it seemed like her mom and dad would be perfect. And I finally just waited until I was with her and said, hey, look, um, I really got to talk to your mom and dad. Everybody's saying they won't talk, but can you help me out? And she just, you know, set it up. So there are many different ways to go, but, you know, you just can't be scared of offending uh, you know, some of the PR people are amazing and some of the handlers are wonderful, but, um, you know, you can't be concerned about offending them if what you're trying to get at is a, the best story possible. You mentioned Tom Hanks. What's the challenge that you have and how do you conquer the challenge of profiling someone who's been profiled a lot in, in trying to find something new to say about somebody like Tom Hanks? Well, I read every profile that's been written. I mean, that's one thing. And then I read every little article that's been written. And then I, um, you know, like the Tom Hanks thing, he had that, um, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm going to blank on the movie because he's made a million movies that are all great. <laughs> but he had the movie where he was, uh, you know, taken hostage on the boat and the-, the, the Oh yeah, by the Somali- Somalian pirates. So I think, I, I talked to the director. I think this is what happened. I talked to the director of that film because I was very, very struck by the visceral nature of that last scene where he, he has been saved and he's in the uh, hospital room uh, or he's getting examined by the nurse. And I just found that fascinating. It was very, very moving and just so well done. You know, whenever I see a Tom Hanks movie, I say, uh, do we need this movie? And then you see it and you go, oh my God, he's so good. Um, but... I talked to the director and he told me how they used a real nurse and that also he was concerned about Hanks because at one point the nurse actually took his real blood pressure and it was and it was like through the roof and and he was concerned about it. So I did whatever I could to actually reach that nurse. Uh, I, it wasn't easy. She was I think she was on a ship somewhere. And uh, but I was able to reach her and get her to tell me the story of doing that scene with Hanks, which. The scene, the story would have been good. That moment would have been good with the director, but I thought it would be better with, um, you know, with the actual nurse who was involved in that. So, I so, mean, is that the best story? You know, did I do the best Tom Hanks profile ever? I, I, probably not. He probably did a better one when he was less guarded and, and less famous, but I did the best one I could, you know? How do you get somebody? And by the way, the name of the film is Captain Phillips. Uh, the magic of the internet has told us that. So, thank you. Um, how, do, how do you how do you get uh, how do you get somebody like Tom Hanks or any or anybody, Bill Murray, Norm Macdonald, to open up? Do you do you sometimes find with these really famous subjects that they are closed off? They've done a million of these things. Um, they're they're they've got one eye on the clock. How do you get them to sort of relax and warm up and say something that they've never said before or reveal something they've never revealed before? Well, uh, I think part of it is just being able to have a conversation. We uh, kind of, we, we've reached the point in life where we discount the value of actually listening to people and having a, a, an intelligent conversation. And also, the other thing I'd say is that a lot of these people, not to dismiss the like entertainment tonight or anything. But a lot of these people are, um, you know, I remember I talked to Peter Buck from REM once and he's kind of a guarded guy and pretty quick into our conversation, he was like kind of loosening up. And I asked him, you know, about that. And he said, well, you know, many of these interviews I do, people don't even, the person interviewing me knows about the thing they're supposed to talk to me about, but they don't even know who REM is anymore. You know, I mean, people have <laughs> short attention spans and also yeah. 
you know, time passes and things are forgotten. So if you actually know things and, and people, you know, you know, respect that and they'll, and they'll talk to you, but that's not the only way. I mean, with, I mean, Norm Macdonald, you brought up, I was doing a profile of Eddie Murphy and uh, I wanted to talk to Norm because he had written a piece for, for, Eddie uh, to be performed on the 40th anniversary special where uh, Eddie was going to play Cosby or like Norm wanted him to. And, you know, Eddie refused to do that. And it was a pretty good story. And, um, you know, Norm is obsessive about tweeting. He's all over the place. He tweets entire baseball games. So I thought he'd be kind of accessible. So I wrote him a note or I wrote, I, I, I wrote to him, uh, I wrote to his manager. Then I wrote to him on Twitter and Norm, uh, uh, followed me and DM'd me on Twitter. And then uh, I told him what I wanted to write about and he wouldn't, he just didn't respond ever. And then the article came out and Norm put up a tweet that was like, Jeff Edgers, nobody writes about comedy better than than he does. I thought, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and so I just, I wrote back to Norm and said, hey, I'm going to be in LA. Could I come in and see you sometime? And um, it started this, uh, I mean, it was like a year long process of sitting with Norm for hours in his, uh, you know, in his condo and just talking and having all these text message conversations and just getting into this story in a way that was, I mean, that was the perfect story for me because Norm's really interesting and really underappreciated and smart, but he also has no publicist really. He had no product coming out. And so I just could go at my own pace. And, you know, we ended up actually digitizing the, um, um, our our conversations, our, our direct message conversations, and and posting them as part of the story, which was I've never seen that before for something like that. Um, you know, I've seen it for investigative things, but uh, because Norm, you know, over that time he, there were maybe hundreds of messages from him, you know, and and back from me too. So I don't know if I've totally answered that question, but they're all every way you go here is a different way. You know, always trying to find your way into that story because. I don't feel like I'm ever going to write another profile of Bill Murray or um, Ava DuVernay, and I want it to be the best one possible. Well, I love the Norm Macdonald profile. Uh, the title of it is, Will Somebody Please Give Norm Macdonald Another TV Show? It was published in August of 2016. And I thought the texts and and the direct messages from Norm was such a smart thing to do you to get his permission to allow you to use them because it was this it was this really great window into his thinking and it's, it was a sort of separate conversation from the hours that you spent with him in his condo it was this digital conversation that was also extremely revealing about who he is and where he is right now uh, you know in his mid 50s and and it, and it, and it came across Jeff beautifully that this is a guy without a publicist without really you know, much of a plan doesn't really matter, um, but he's hilarious. And, and, you know, and among comedians, right? I mean, he's seen as sort of a god, a legend, is really one of the great comedians of all time. Yeah, and I think Norm appreciated that I saw him as more than just a guy doing stand-up, that I think he's really, really, I mean, he's very complicated, but he's also incredibly intelligent. And the novel that he wrote over the year that I, you know, I mean, it's amazing how much manuscripts are guarded, but one time I was over his place and I looked and there was a bunch of junk on a table. It's like papers and stuff. And I said, what's that? And he's like, oh, it's my book. It's garbage. You don't want to look at that. <laughs> and I started reading it. I couldn't really understand what it was. But by the time that story ran, that book was ready. And somehow it almost looked like I was writing a story to advance his book or what, or, or the timing was right, but it couldn't have been further from the process, you know? 
Yeah, that's that's very cool. Um, you know, it's an amazing privilege that you have, Jeff, that not many of us have. I'm lucky enough that I get a lot of time to do my stories too. But in a year, spending a year with Norm as you did is an incredible privilege. And there are very few writers in America that 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 get that. Do you find the more time that you're given to do these stories, the higher the pressure is, either with yourself or among your editors, to really deliver the goods? Well, I feel pressure anyway. I mean, it wouldn't mm-hmm. matter if I was covering the, uh, you know, the Sudbury Town, uh, you know, uh, finance committee. I, right. I just feel, I feel pressure. I mean, how could you not feel pressure? You have this great uh, opportunity and uh, it's really, I mean, we're, we're spoiled. We get to actually write stories for like money. And I feel like um, I don't want to mess that up. I don't think I, I mean, I know logically I can't mess that up unless I don't do my job but I don't want to mess that up. And, you know, an added piece of that is that my editors, I mean, Liz Seymour, who's the head of um, uh, arts and style at the post, she's really drummed it into my head to think big so that even when I try to do littler stories or quicker stories, she's always like, why are you doing that? Focus on the big, you know, try to do things that are high impact that people will want to focus on. And, uh, you know, I think that's, a little bit of the key to unlock newspapers right now, which is for years people were shrinking them or going, oh, we can do more local or we don't need to sp- have as many people. I think what the Post has done, because I am a cheerleader for the Post, is we've thought, let's get more national people. Let's find bigger stories. Let's get the stories people are really you know, talking about. And so and in the end, what ends up happening is I'm working on that Norm story for a year. Yes, but... You know, I, I didn't just work on that, obviously. I mean, I would go to California for, um, I mean, my wife sees it because I come home exhausted. If I go out to California from Friday through Sunday, I cover um, the Oscars, you know, running around the red carpet trying to get stuff for us. I write a story on uh, Chris Rock doing a, a, a secret showcase before the, uh, before the Oscars. Um, I go see Norm for like eight hours. Then I'm doing a story on Terry Reed, the guy who was supposed to be in Led Zeppelin. And I'm over at like the studio hanging out with Terry for hours. So some of these stories come out in a year. Some of them come out in a week. Some of them come out the next day. But I'm balancing all of that because uh, that's the way we do our jobs. You know, I mean, there's there are times when I might write a 4,000 word story and I'll get and I'll think it's great, but it'll get far less attention than this Q&A I did with the author of a Tom Petty bio that reveals something amazing. So it's all kind of a balancing act, but you should, I mean, if you're a good writer, you should live in fear of failure, I think, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I say that all the time to to young people. You know, you have to report, at least how I do it, and I'm sure you do it too. I I report in total fear and live in fear that that at any moment, the plug is going to get pulled on this great gig um and and these great privileges that we have and you have to report in fear and complete insecurity uh as you're doing it that there's something you don't know there's some great fact that you're going to miss particularly when you're trying to do a profile the, the types of profiles that you write where you're you know your goal is to write i'm assuming every single time the best profile anybody's ever written about about Norm Macdonald or Tom Hanks and and so and when you're given that time at least for me I mean I agree with you that I put pressure on myself regardless of the time but the more time that passes I think in my head there's a clock and I, it ratchets up the pressure to 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 really deliver and and you sometimes you can't sometimes it's just impossible uh, to to hit the mark or the expectations that you set for yourself or that your editor set for you 
Well, Norm terrified me. I mean, that story terrified me because I had months and months of thinking about it. And it is always easier to just write it and sit down and get because the ultimate, you know, way to get over any kind of block or fear is just do it. But yep. yeah, for sure. But I wouldn't have had that. That story would just simply have not been as good if I had you know, cut bait at a certain time. And same with Ava. I just kept going back and back and I knew it was going to drive me crazy, but I also knew in the end it would serve the story better. You talked about taking big swings and the sort of ethos now at the Washington Post. And, you know, you guys have that privilege now with Bezos um, in charge to, to do that. Um, uh, and, and it's true. I mean, the, the big swings, the big impact stories are the ones that, uh, clearly are, uh, I think, going to save newspapers. Um, and, they're the, you know, the high impact journalism is what everybody is hungering for because there's just so much quick hit, hot take garbage um, that's, that's, that's out there. So I'm curious about, Jeff, what piece did you do that had the longest legs and had the biggest impact? Well, I've had a few that are very surprising uh, you know i'm i'm like a little bit of a numbers geek and i like to know what my numbers are i know that sounds you know people are like oh why would why would you care about that but i like to know how a story does you know um and i did a story last year on the de- it was called like the death of the electric guitar and it really just was sparked over hearing about a a, a tick down in sales i mean a considerable tick in in, in electric guitar sales and just pursuing that all over the place. I mean, I wasted, not wasted, but I went down a lot of avenues that I didn't end up using. Like I'd go to Nazareth, Pennsylvania to go to the Martin Guitar Factory and then I wouldn't use that, you know, because I just, I didn't find what I needed there. But in the end, that story ran um, and I think it shocked my editors and me uh, how uh, incredibly uh, well-read it was. And a lot of people were angry at it. it. Like a lot of the guitar people thought it was like a cheap shot or mean take or they were very defensive i mean there were two guitar magazines our designer matt callahan uh came up with this amazing idea to actually buy a guitar and set it on fire and we filmed that <laughs> in a controlled atmosphere with like a fire official there and uh and then they photographed this crusty guitar for the design on the page um it was really beautiful but two of these guitar magazines actually um ran like articles refuting our 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 story one of them said like fake news and then they wrote a whole story about how the the post article was um was you know a a lie and they kept using like things like they would say that there were facts there were things that i just listed that were facts and they'd say like edgers claims and i actually wrote to one of them which is stupid but my wife said it was stupid i wrote to one of the people and i was like hey if you're gonna write that just ask me for where i got my data because i got it from the industry and um the woman wrote back a very uh, defensive message calling me old, which I am. I'm 47. <laughs> I said that to her. Um, but, uh, you know, that article had incredible legs and I was really surprised by it. And it still has legs. And I get notes all the time now uh, from that article and, and things will be tweeted uh, on it. Um, you know, also this, I'm always surprised by how uh, I call it geezer rock. But if I write something on like, I wrote this thing on Tom Petty. It, it mm-hmm. was uh, an interview with Warren Zanes who wrote this definitive book on Petty and revealed that Petty had been a heroin addict for a time. That story just, it just, I don't know what it is. It's almost like picture this like little, you know, hamster wheel where it just keeps revolving and keeps going and you don't know, you know, you don't know why, but it, but it, but it happens. Um, I also did a story last year on Daryl Hammond, who was, um, you know, the long running Saturday Night Live uh um, impressionist 
And um, I had been, there's a story I'd pursued again for more than a year because it struck me as interesting that he had been the greatest Trump I had seen. And then they replaced him with Alec Baldwin, which obviously was very successful commercially, but I actually thought was not artistically very successful. I thought Daryl Hammond's Trump was much better than than Baldwin's. Com- completely agree, by the way. Yeah, and I spent absolutely. more than a year trying, you know, Daryl Hammond's a very complicated dude who, you know, he um, has, he battle with drugs and depression and insecurities and he actually was a cutter he would cut himself uh backstage before he went on to perform which was amazing to me and i'd read this book so i spent a long time trying to get daryl to talk with me and when he finally did i thought it was i mean i just love that story it was perfect because it was a lead sunday story about something really important and 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 prominent and it was running right before saturday night live season started and yet it was completely different than any story that would exist on that. And again, that story had huge, uh, really, really good impact. You know, like a lot of people read it. So, and then there are stories that you write that you like go, oh, I don't know. Like I wrote a profile of Issa Rae, who I think is fantastic. And it didn't catch on for some reason. I don't know why it just didn't. Yeah. The Daryl Hammond uh, profile I love. It was in, it was on the Sunday long read list, of course, and we'll link to it uh, with this podcast. So listeners uh, can check it out if they missed it when it was published. Daryl Hammond's uh, Bill Clinton is, I think, one of the best. Don't you? Bill Clinton, Sean Connery. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he has a whole litany of news people, you know, Chris Matthews. I mean, when I started, you know, you go down the rabbit hole, but when I started looking at who he had done, I couldn't believe how good these. I mean, his Geraldo, they used to go on and on and on. They're all perfect because Daryl takes that as like he didn't go to he had all sorts of problems with drugs and drinking, but he didn't go to the parties. He would do that on his own. And he would sit in that room with these videotapes and study these people like it was, um, you know, like he was a scientist and uh, it comes through. I mean, that's why his Trump was so good, I thought. Yeah, he just got the cadence down of whoever he was imitating perfectly. Um, you know, the the way people would speak. He's 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 fantastic. Your story's great. So, highly recommended recommend folks to check it out. So, Jeff, you went on a 15-hour road trip with Fabio, the male model. <laughs> what did you guys talk about? We talked about everything. I mean, he has a special <laughs> vitamin C that he gets from overseas. Uh, and, um, he, he shared a little with me. It's, uh, it's potent, but no, you know, <laughs> potent in what way it's, it, it, it makes you feel like you're Fabio. I mean, Fabio's like, <laughs> it's really interesting to me because Fabio is, um, I never had thought about him all that much before, but some guy kept calling me, complaining to me that not complaining. He wanted coverage. He kept saying he was about to break Fabio's record for a number of, uh, covers on romance novels. So I thought, well, that's kind of a weird record. I've never seen it reported anywhere. So then I called Fabio's uh, guy or contact and I said, hey, there's this guy out here who says he's going to break Fabio's record. And he said, uh, Fabio's rep said, well, I don't think that's a record and I don't think Fabio really cares and I don't think he really keeps records like that. And so I said, okay, what's Fabio up to, by the way? And he's like, oh, he he just bought hundreds of acres of land up in Oregon and uh, he he's a real outdoorsman and he loves going up there. And so he will leave from LA and, and drive up there. I said, Oh, that sounds interesting. What does he do there? And he said, well, he's got a waterfall and he clears the land. And I just, I mean, everything about the conversation was so interesting to me. And I said, well, I'd love to go see him. And he goes, Oh yeah, let me talk to him. And then he called me back. He said, yeah, Fabio would be great with that. You could fly into Portland airport and he'd pick you up. I go, no, no, no. 
I'd love to go with him. How does he get there? And he goes, oh, well, he's got these two big dogs. So he drives up from L.A. and he usually drives straight. It's about 15 hours. I said, I'd love to. Could I drive with him? And uh, and so it just was all yes. They just kept saying yes. And, um, you know, Fabio is, you know, we can joke all we want. But, I mean, Fabio was like the he was part of that last generation. And he was the only real male model who succeeded on the level of like Cindy Crawford and all those people. Uh, and so I was interested in that a little bit, but I was also just like, what will happen if I drive for 15 hours with Fabio? And, uh, it was, I think it was a pretty good story. I mean, I don't like, I did it as a road trip, you know, basically I didn't, I brought in so, a little bit of outside stuff, but I really did it as a road trip. And, uh, we created a little video. I held up my phone and, and, and filmed him talking about politics. You know, I didn't realize it yet, but he was super, he's a super big Trump guy. At that point he was being murky about it, but he was giving his opinions, and, uh, you know, also talking to him about celebrity and the nature of it and, and, and things he had turned down over the years and things he had done. So it, that's Fabio. You know, I don't think anyone else is going to write a, a story on their 15-hour road trip with Fabio. What's the thing that Fabio said to you that surprised you the most during the road trip? Boy, that's a good question. I, uh, I'm not sure if there's one thing that surprised me. I, I did... I did appreciate the fact that he really um, he wanted to just oh I think I know what it is I think he was like really depressed about the fact that he hadn't settled down that he had been so um, uh, you know he had there was this one woman who he had like had a chance to marry and, and start a family with and they had broken up and he said years later he still was regretful of that and she had a family now and she had like settled down that was interesting to me so it's Fabio's broken heart. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Jeff, which comedian offered you a job? Norm. Norm did. But Norm, um, <laughs> you know, this is a very important thing for everybody to understand, and, and, and you understand it, I know, which is at a certain point when you're working really hard on something, someone forgets that they're, uh, that what your job is. Um, and, oh, you know, yeah. Norm, yes. uh, there's even a time, I recorded it on audio. It was very funny to me. Norm said, well, are we friends now? Can't we be friends? And I said, no, we cannot be friends. Uh, we could talk about it, but after this piece is done. Um, you know, I was very specific about that because the reality is there are times when you have to go even to somebody you've spent, you know, endless amounts of time with and you have to report on something they don't want you to report on. You know, Norm didn't want me to talk about his ex-wife. Well, it wasn't like there was some scandalous story there, but it seemed odd to me that he had this son that he, you know, uh, cared so much about, and yet no one had ever written about his ex-wife in any way. So I didn't really write about his ex-wife, but I asked him about it, and it was one of the most awkward conversations, you know, you could you could ever have. Um, but, you know, at, at certain times, Norm would say, like, hey, how about this project? Why don't we work on this? Or, um, oh, I'd love to hire you to write for me. You know, Norm really does respect journalism, you know, uh, and so he'll sometimes send me a note and say, who's the best, uh, you know, who, who's the best at asking questions because I have this thing coming up and I need help. And, um, you know, my job is not to be his friend, really. It's not to be his advisor. It's really to be someone documenting something. And so it's a little bit of a tightrope at times because you don't want to be mean, but also, you know, I do make it clear what the purpose is here. Have you ever had an, a, a moment in a profile, either with Norm or with anybody else, where they say what Norm says, like, well, I'd rather you not write about something, and, you, and you're chummy with them, you've spent all this time with them, and they sort of insist on it, and then the relationship goes south, either either 
because you insist that you have to do it or once the story comes out and they read something that they really didn't want you to to write about? Well, uh, I mean, I think that, you know, one time when I was at the Boston Globe, I was doing a story on Keith Lockhart, who is the uh, who's the um, music director and conductor of the Boston Pops. And um, I was trying to do a very strong profile on him and he'd had a million stories written about him but they were all very surface level very light and glossy you know here's this young guy who leads the boston pops that does the july 4th concert on the esplanade and i had had this experience where i was going to uh, a gala to honor james levine who was then the music director of the boston symphony and now has been removed from from these positions after this uh scandal over um accusations of sexual harassment but I, I went, I got into a car with one of the PR people at the symphony to go over to the gathering to cover it. And they picked up Keith Lockhart and Keith was very uh, grumbly. You know, I, I'd have to look at the article to see the exact quotes, but he was talking about something and the PR woman kept trying to keep it light. She was like, hey, what about, you know, what what are you doing this weekend? He said, oh, I'm going to the Patriots or something. And uh, he and she said, well, what what about your music? And he said, F my music. He didn't say F, but you know. And right. I, I was like, I had a little notepad in my left pocket, so I scribbled all that stuff down. So um, I found that fascinating, and it told me something, not just that he was had another side, but also here he was going to this event with this other conductor who was being taken more seriously and maybe there was something there and i spent a lot of time doing that profile asking him about his position in life because the pops is considered like symphony light and how he felt and about what he wanted to do because he was at a transition point well i went back and i was going to use that original anecdote and Mm -hmm. i felt like i needed to be upfront with him because uh he didn't know he was on the reporter's clock when he said that but I also thought it was very, uh, very much something that showed uh, the truth. And so I actually read him that little section, which I would normally never do. But I said, I'm reading you this because you didn't know that you were being interviewed. And I feel like it's fair. And he was actually cool with it at the moment. Later on, he started telling people that had that had never happened, that he had never said that. And even though there were other people in the car, they started to sort of back him up. And I, I didn't really get into it, but I thought it was interesting that at one point it can be like, oh, this is great. This is showing the truth. I'm a real artist. And at another point, it's like, oh, I don't want to be close to that kind of you know mood or feeling. And did his opinion change once once he saw it in print? Or, or was it or was it even before the story was published that he started going south on it actually happening? He was he called me. I remember I was painting my house. He called me. I was on a ladder right after that story came out. I picked up the phone. He said, thank you so much for taking me so seriously. I really appreciate it. It's a different kind of story. It's interesting what the reaction will be, but I really appreciate it. And then like over the next few weeks, I think as people responded to it and it wasn't the shiny, happy Keith that they wanted. Um, then I think his opinion started to change. Yeah, that's happened to me a number of times uh, where a piece comes out and people's reaction to something that somebody says that they might be fine with prior to the publication colors their view of it. And and they can get quite cranky uh, once they hear, you know, why'd you say that Um, when they thought it was fine to say it, but then the people around them, um, you know, were telling them you never should have said that. And I can't believe you said that in print. And then they'll, they'll change their minds. Um, after it's out in the world. It certainly happens. Now, Jeff, um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is you're a guy with certain pop culture passions, and that certainly came across with your documentary uh, about your obsession with the kinks and trying to get the Davies brothers to reunite. Um, 
you you grew up in the 80s so stuff that's sort of in your wheelhouse from then David Letterman run DMC are, are almost like passion projects when you write the profiles but I'm curious when you are not really a fan of something when the topic is not one that you would gravitate toward as a fan um, in arts and culture, how is your reporting process different? In other words, if you're not necessarily a, a fanboy or somebody who's immersed in that subject as, as a young person or really respects that person, does your reporting process change um, when you're tackling that kind of subject? Well, Yes. I mean, the, part of it is a discovery for myself as well. So like I just recently profiled Lionel Richie and, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the 1980s, when I was uh, listening to music, Lionel Richie was to me the opposite of what I liked. I mean, I, I don't know how to say it any better. I mean, <laughs> I was listening to um, I was listening to The Clash and Ozzy Osbourne. And, you know, I, I was not, I was not, I mean, even, I listened to some stuff that was pop music, but it'd be more like a little bit of Def Leppard, maybe. It was mm -hmm. not Lionel Richie. Lionel Richie was like a little bit of the Antichrist, uh, you know, just super yeah, I was, glossy. I was going to say, Def Leppard, is, Def Leppard is on the far end of the spectrum of pop music from Lionel Richie. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're drawing the graph, it's on the opposite, Def Leppard's on the opposite end of Lionel Richie. For and sure. I thought, I just thought I had taste, you know, and so I, so that's how I felt. So I, for one thing that happened is, um, in uh, June of 2016, here's a story that I wish I'm glad that Lionel Richie's people didn't see before I profiled him. But I went to this event, a very obscure event called the Songwriters Hall of Fame uh, ceremony. It's not televised. I went there because I was doing that guitar story and I was with the CEO of Gibson. Uh, and, and Lionel Richie was getting an award. And one thing that was interesting is that they don't, because it's not televised, they don't have that music that comes in and cuts you off. And so Lionel Richie gave this speech that... Uh, it was one of the best speeches I've ever heard. And it was, it was beautiful, but it was also really funny. And I actually wrote a story and I headlined it. I couldn't stand Lionel Richie. Then he made the best speech ever at an awards show you can't see. <laughs> so that's interesting, right? So <laughs> Yeah, I like that. It's great. So then they, I'm assigned to profile Lionel Richie. And I have to figure this one out. And so, uh, you know, I, I respect artists and, and creators of all kinds. Uh, unless they've done something horrible to it, you know, uh, a pet or something. I mean, I, I want to give them a fair shake. So I st what I did is I started listening to as much of Lionel Richie as I could. I started listening to the Commodores, which I it's like not really my era, but I listened to it and I started to get it. And then I actually listened to all his solo records. And what I found was that um, if you tore away the varnish of synthesized glop, you actually found really well-structured songs and that also songs that were uh maybe songs that i'd gotten so sick of because they i'd heard them so many times weren't quite as bad as they were but more than that i thought i want to understand who this guy is because he was one of the last figures from that era where you could still make five million you know dollars a day and never have to yeah. work again and so i was interested in that and and then i met him and he was really um he was a, like a really compelling figure. And the I, you know, I spoke to every one of the Commodores. I actually uh, cut Barry Gordy out of my piece because he just didn't say anything interesting. I, you know, I talked to him about him, his biggest insecurities and biggest issues. And I feel like the piece I did uh, actually makes a pretty good argument for why he's, he's an important person. Doesn't mean I'm going to put dancing on the ceiling on, but uh, right. <laughs> but it does mean that I, I and it doesn't mean that I wrote a lie or a puff piece because I, I don't feel like I did. Um, 
but I, I do feel like I, I got it, you know, and, and I'm just so glad he didn't see that earlier story. And are, and are you punching up some Commodores classics now? Are you listening to Sail On or you, you like the Commodores? I, I do like them. They're, they're very, yeah. I mean, what was interesting to me is that the, I talked to every Commodore. I don't know if anyone's done that in the last 10 years. And I understand why they, you know, they've never played a show together with Lionel Richie since like 1982. I get it now. You know, there's such a strange dynamic between them. And even after that story was done, the guitarist wrote me and was angry that I didn't give him enough space uh, in the story. I was like, well, it's a, I mean, it's a Lionel Richie story, but I, you know, I really, um, uh, I, I really grew to appreciate that music, and I, I kept, I gave away a few records, but I kept his first solo record, which I actually think is really good. Fascinating. That's such a great uh, story you tell about about putting that piece together. Um, a few of your pals asked me to ask you for your Bill Murray story, so I want to, I want to hear, I want to hear your Bill Murray story. Well, that was. Um, that was it started as a nightmare bill murray you know this is supposed to be an affectation that makes him charming and special but you know bill murray has no he has no publicist um he has no manager so you know if you want to make a movie and he's 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 impossible to reach yeah if you want to make a movie like it's all again this is all charming if you want to reach him to like if you're a director who wants to reach him for a movie you have to find out this 800 number i guess and leave a message and if he's interested he'll call you back and then you have to send him a script to like a mailbox so right I, he has a P, he has a PO box I, I've actually tried to get Bill Murray to cooperate with the story with me um, I wanted to play golf with him for ESPN the magazine and uh, couldn't get him I of mean, course I, not. Know, I had the 1-800 number I had the PO box you know I had lots of people intermediaries and he just didn't want to do it so I know how t- I know what a tough Getty is. It's impossible, and and so I um so I did everything. I so I started writing uh, to. He does have an attorney, so I sent his attorney a letter. And here's the thing: yep. I do all, I always do the Twain Award um profile for the Post now because I guess I've been lucky enough to be given that profile. I mean, maybe they'll take it away next year. But so I've done Jay Leno, Eddie Murphy, uh, Bill Murray, and then last year David Letterman. So the thing about it is uh, that story is actually not supposed to be so hard to get to your subject because the Kennedy Center really wants you to write it. So the only person in over like 20 years that has not submitted to an interview was George Carlin because he died before the story could be written. Right. Uh, that's it. <laughs> but there, you know, I'm dealing with the PR people over there. I'm writing Murray's attorney. Uh, nobody will talk to me. No one will, you know, they're desperate to try to work it out. They hear that maybe he'll see me in Chicago. Maybe I could, but nothing ever gets on the table. I call, I start interviewing people who um, are, you know, Wes Anderson and Ivan Reitman and people who are on the cast with him and Sarah Live, Lorraine Newman. Um, I have this really bad conversation with Lorraine Newman where um, I I wanted to talk to her, but I didn't need to. And I would have been okay if she didn't want to. So first she didn't want to. Then she said she wanted to. Then she wanted to do an email interview. I said, I, I don't do email interviews. So we got on the phone and we had a very awkward conversation where um, this happens sometimes to me a lot, which is I'm not really asking her anything that probing and she volunteers something. Like I said, oh, um, you know, what's the last time you saw Bill Murray? Oh, he showed up at my house with mangoes, something like that. I said, oh, that's interesting. Why would he show up with mangoes? She goes, oh, he was, there was some issue with a relationship he wanted to talk to me about. So, okay, that happens. Then she says, I, uh, 
I didn't. Um, I, I can't believe we talked about that. That's too personal. I know he wouldn't want me to talk about it. So, okay, that's fine. I mean, I was thinking to myself, what am I going to do? Quote her saying that there was some relationship, but she's never said who it was. And I mean, I wasn't going to use it anyway. So right. then she apparently texts him a message saying, you know, I talked to this guy. I'm a little worried, uh, whatever. And he writes back to her something cryptic, but negative. And so I have then determined that she has ruined the whole interview. And so then I'm back in this circle of uh, confusion, trying to get her to write him back and say that I'm okay. All these famous people like Ivan Reitman, I'm saying, could you, could you try to reach out to Bill Murray for me? No, 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 can't do that. I mean, he would be, he'd be very uncomfortable. That's not what our relationship is based on. I'm like, Ivan Reitman, didn't you make uh, like uh, stripes and uh, twins and, and Ghostbusters? Are you, are you terrified that Bill Murray will get angry that you ask him to talk to a staff writer at the Washington Post before the twin? So whatever. So finally, I reached this Zen moment where I realized, and I'm reading all this horrible philosophy that he reads. You know, I realized that I just had to write the story without him. And that was the only thing I could do. And so that's what I did. I wrote the story. Part of it was about, you know, I made sure to talk about him. I didn't want to make it this self-absorbed story about like, oh, Jeff didn't get an interview. But I did a story about him talking about how quirky he is. I talked to directors who had gotten, you know, uh, you know, I talked to Sofia Coppola who started filming Lost in Translation in Japan and, and didn't know if he was going to show up. And he right. ended up showing yeah. up a couple days later. I talked to uh, somebody about how he, you know, required a... Um, uh, uh, that a satellite TV be, be put in, in in Italy when they were filming so that he could watch Cubs games. I talked to Wes Anderson talking about how when he was a little kid, he went out and he uh, purchased uh, uh, on, I think, like a disc or something, um, the, the movie that Bill Murray did after... Um, uh, what is the movie? What, what's the famous movie? Here we go again. What's the famous movie he did um, before Ghostbusters uh, that was the serious movie that everybody uh, then attacked him for? Um Razor's Edge. Razor's Edge, yeah. Uh, you know, Wes yeah. Anderson told me about being like 12 years old and riding his bike to get Razor's Edge. And I watched Razor's Edge really closely. I thought that was an interesting thing. And I wrote this whole story. I even talked about how I had this horrible experience with Lorraine Newman. And uh, and then nothing, you know, whatever. It kept going. And finally, this one fellow who's a friend of his, who's a writer from Saturday Night Live who likes me, kept calling me. And he's a little OCD. And he kept saying, I just talked to Bill today. He's going to call you. I go, Really? And I would be in like an apple orchard or I'd be at home or whatever. And he called me every day for two weeks and Bill never called. My story goes up online at about 10 a.m. And I'm going out to go for a run and my phone rings. And uh, it's like an hour later and it's Bill Murray. And he just says, uh, I mean, I kind of recorded it, but it was a little bit a little bit hard because I wasn't prepared. But he's like, uh, yeah, you know, I was talking to Jim. He said I should call you. We'd have a good conversation. It's like. Well, yeah, but uh, you know, my story just just published. Oh, really? Really? Oh, uh, was that okay? It's like, yeah, sure, it's fine. You know, I was like talking talking low with him, and we talked for about a half an hour, and so I ended up writing a story right after that that basically was headlined. I finished my Bill Murray profile, and then he called me, and then I just quoted everything from that conversation. I mean, you know, why not? And the one thing I'd say at the end of the conversation, he said, where do you, where do you live? I go, oh, I live out in uh, Concord, Massachusetts, uh, you know, near Walden Pond. Oh, Walden, I want to visit that. So this year, a year later, I was at the Twain Awards because I'd profiled Letterman and Bill Murray walked in and I'd never met him in person. And the PR woman from the Kennedy Center brought him over 
uh, he was one of the presenters, and he said, oh, hi, how are you doing? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm the guy who wrote the story on you. And he didn't say, great story or glad you did it. He said, oh, yeah, you live in Walden Pond. I've got to come visit you there. I said, oh, sure, sure, come anytime. <laughs> what do you say there, right? But in the end, I have to tell you, him, his not participating made that story much better than it would have been had he called me two hours before it was publishing. I'm so glad he didn't. Yeah, it's a great lesson, right? For young writers, sometimes if so, if you don't get the get, it's it, it you and and if you're as dogged as Jeff was in talking to everybody around Bill Murray, the the piece can be even stronger. It can be even better. Um, I did a Roger Goodell profile in 2013. I asked Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, to talk to me a half a dozen times. He kept saying no. I think the story's better without him. You know, it, it forced me to talk to everybody. It would have anyway, but I think the piece is better because Goodell would not cooperate with the story. The, um, the only thing you don't want to do is, and I think this is a, a, a comes with inexperience and also frustration, is you don't want to turn it into a Ringo wouldn't talk to me story. I think right, you want yes. to make sure that you remember what you're doing and serve the subject and not make it about you, really. And And I think, Absolutely. you know, I don't know if that comes with age or just like, a, 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 you know, insecurity or knowing, but you don't want to make it petty or like this famous person won't talk to me. That's the only downside. Yeah, you don't want you, you don't want to be petulant about it. You just do your job and and do the best you can to find out, you know, to reveal things about somebody who's not going to reveal them to you himself or herself. Tell me about Letterman. I'm a huge Letterman fan since I was a kid. What was it like doing that profile and hanging out with him? Letterman is uh, one of the, I mean. It, there's clearly a, a wall that has to be between you and Letterman. You know, he doesn't yeah. invite you out to the ranch in Montana to ride around on a horse. But he met me in a uh, he, he let me meet him in Hartford, Connecticut at the Mark Twain house where he wanted to actually genuinely see the house. Uh, you know, you get the feeling that I know mean, he makes a joke like, oh, I'm doing this show on Netflix so I can get out of the house. But you do actually get the feeling he does appreciate having experiences and he does appreciate interacting with other human beings, which is, I, I'm not sure he always felt like that, but he he, mm -hmm. he he clearly does. And so, you know, when you sit down with Letterman, um, as a, it's a joy to hear him talk. He's very entertaining. But one thing that'll happen is he'll tell you a story about Lenny Schultz at the comedy store, the guy who used to smush bananas on his body and, uh, you know, make, make his eyes cross. <laughs> and if you're not careful... You got about 47 minutes of Lenny Schultz, you know, at one point in my interview with him, he had, you know, there are a couple different places we met. One time we met by the Hudson River. Uh, sounds kind of majestic, right? But uh, his 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 guy there, Tom, who's, a, you know, really good at helping helping, uh, you know, get things together. Uh, Tom was there, but he was standing away from us. And, you know, Dave told me this story about Lenny Schultz. It really did take a long time and other stories. And Tom comes up and he goes, okay, well, we're about done. You got anything else you want to ask him? And I looked at my sheet and it was like, it said um, heart attack or, or heart condition, extortion, uh, affair. Um, and, and, and I was like, well, what else? Oh, and 9-11. I was like, Dave, can we run? Th no. So what I said to Dave was I said, Dave, um, I've got a few things to talk with you about here, but I, I really can't do it quickly. Is there a way I could get you on the phone? And that I think was like the, the like the golden bullet because he then was like, "Oh no no, ta let's take whatever time you need. Let's let's do it." And so we just ended up talking about all these things openly. And he was very, um, uh, 
I mean, what I appreciated is that there was no subject that kind of made things ugly or, or you know, or, or I couldn't talk to him about. Um, right. You know, and I, also I just did this story on Jimmy Kimmel that just went up today. And um, I mean, you realize how much uh, Letterman carries weight with people because, uh, you know, I, I got Letterman to talk about Kimmel. Kimmel is the only, you know, he hasn't gone on, Letterman hasn't gone on Colbert or Fallon. He really does like Jimmy genuinely. And when that story ran, Jimmy Kimmel sent me a note. He just, he just said, um, that quote from Dave is really all I could ever have wanted. I mean, you know, that's how, how much weight he carries. And I will tell you that in the, in the podcast to that, to that story, Letterman, there's a, I don't want to give it away, but it's a great little Zen moment that, that is just so funny that Letterman just throws in there. So, which I'm glad I did. Oh, that's great. Well, well, people absolutely should check that out. Um, uh, so I'm curious if there has ever been a subject of one of your profiles um, where you aggressively were pursuing either access or more information where it backfired, where just, you know, you, you were using every tool in your trick bag and it backfired on you terribly. Has there ever been a moment like that? Uh it's a real. It's a good question, and I'm not sure there has been. Um, I think that there have been times where I've been miffed by why I can't actually get someone to talk with me, and mm-hmm. I've worked really hard at that. I mean, I'd love to do a good story on Kristen Wiig, right? I don't know. I can't. No one will. No one will call. I can't get them to even see the light on that. Winona Ryder. You know, those are people that I'd love to write about the right way, um, but they're 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 not game. I don't know why. You know, I. I do wonder if part of it is that um, when you send articles to folks who are handling people, sometimes I think that the stories that I'm doing where I really work hard to tell a complete profile, those are stories that people will go, oh, I'd love for my client to have that. And then sometimes I also think they say, boy, that that's the last thing I want my client to do. What I'd like them to do is when their movie's coming out, sit down for 30 short interviews that get, you know, decent press why do i want to have them open up or 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 be revealed in any way you know so i i think maybe and i'm just imagining this i don't know if it's actually true but i think maybe sometimes when you send somebody the norm profile they're not thinking oh boy what would be better than having him reprint my client's text messages you know (laughs) right yeah not right it could run counter um to to what you're trying to do right they're gonna say this is the worst thing ever i don't want this guy near me yeah, I think that's that's possible. And, you know, again, it's just me scanning for rejection and trying to understand why I can't get somebody to, you know, it, it goes back to that Kinks movie you mentioned. I wanted to make a movie about the Kinks because I felt like they weren't appreciated enough. I thought I was going to be a gift to Ray Davies. I was going to go to him and say, look, I'll make a great movie for free. And what in fact was true was that the reason there had they hadn't made one was because he was so difficult and so complicated and the dynamic between uh, Ray and Dave was so complicated. So in fact, I had to make another thing. I didn't make that film. You know, I had to make another one. You, I'm curious how you picked your subjects. Um, you know, you said maybe uh, you revealed it maybe a little bit. And when you said the kinks, you know, are underappreciated. I mean, you know, why Winona Ryder? Uh, why Kristen Wiig? What, why, what about them fascinates you? And, you know, how do you pick the people you want to profile? Well, I just want people who have either, um, on a simple level, I'm interested in. Uh, two, I do like people who are underappreciated or haven't been properly recognized for 
maybe the thing I think they should be recognized for, you know? Um, I also like people who I think maybe they've been really well recognized but haven't been written about right. I mean, I read that mm-hmm. story about uh, Kate McKinnon that was in, I th- was it in Vanity Fair, I think, maybe? I, I'm not sure. But it, it was just interesting to me because it was a really well done article, but it was also a, a lot about the process and about how she won't answer any questions about anything. I mean, I don't know. I don't understand why you're a performer and why you're in a public life, but you won't explain any part of that life. I mean, it wasn't just that she didn't want to get into like personal things. It almost felt like she just didn't want to get into anything. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think there are an endless number of, of really amazing and fascinating people out there that you'd want to write about. So I just keep lists and I just keep writing to them. And I, I you know, I send notes. I, I have a typewriter. I send typewritten notes. I send clips to them. I send papers to them. I just do whatever I can to try to get, you know, if I hear that somebody knows somebody, oh, can you talk to that person? You know, um, and you just hope that you can, you can break through somehow. Cause I feel like if I can just get in the room with that person, um, I can get them to participate. Do you ever send gifts to, to a would be subject? Uh, well, gifts that almost sounds like buying them. So I don't, yeah. So I don't know about but some, but some profile some profile writers do. I'm not going to name them, but I know of a number that do that. Well, so what I'd say is I wouldn't send a gift that's a, like has a real monetary value, but like I will but say sentim- but sentimental sentimental value maybe. Yeah, or you know or just something to connect you more. So I've like I sent to um I mean to Ava at one point I told her, you know, I, I, I'd done this story on Tom Hanks and he had all these typewriters. And when I was putting my office together, I thought it'd be fun to get a typewriter. And then I found that typewriter be actually really useful in that when you send a note to somebody, they really are moved by it because nobody sends physical anything anymore. So she right. said, oh, I've never gotten a typewriter letter. So I, I put a, I got a letter um, that was, uh, you know, on Washington Post stationery, typed it out. And I think I popped like a, like one of our good t-shirts in there, like, you know, the democracy dies in darkness t-shirts. That's about, you know, that's about as far as I'm going to go. Like, I'm not going to send like a coffee basket to somebody, but you know, if I yeah, think there's I'm a not... little, you know, if there's a little, you know, but the letters I think are really important. I mean, there's another subject mm-hmm. who I'm not going to tell you about, but this subject who I'm working on, I, I sent maybe like three or four typewritten letters, uh, you know, just checking in, but also like explaining what I wanted to do and why it should be done. I also worked really hard to get paper copies. You know, I'm on staff, but I, I live outside Boston, so I don't, it's hard to get paper copies, but I'm always nagging our, our assistants to send them to me because I want to send those physical copies to people so that they understand what they're getting as opposed to just sending a link. I think that's kind of, you know, I, I just don't think that's, as moving. So I'll, I'll do that. Um, and look, if I could figure out some gift to send somebody to let them, you know, sit down with me, maybe I'd, maybe I'd do it, but I, I can't really, I can't think of anything that would be worth anything other than your thoughts and time. Yeah. I was really going more for the sentimental gift. I know of a number of writers that will try to find a sentiment, a, a gift of value, really only of, 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 of sentimental value to a a potential subject that has really resonated and helped um, get the access and has worked. And I was, I was you know, it sounds to me that, that your typewritten notes, you know, um, do that for you. Very quickly, uh, Jeff, I want to ask you about your 
uh, oral history of uh, Walk This Way. And how did that come about and how, I mean, I love love that piece. We'll link to it in case folks have missed it. But how did that piece then morph into this book that you're working on that's going to be published next year by Dutton? Well, I just, David Mallitz, who's one of my editors, mentioned that Walk This Way was going to have an anniversary. And um, it seemed pretty interesting to me. So I just started interviewing people. And as I started interviewing them, you know, celebrity interviewing it's like nobody wants to be the first in the door, but once the party's going, they all want to be involved. So, you know, I would interview, I'd get to Joe Perry and then Steven Tyler would call me back, you know, or I'd get to run and then Daryl would call me back. And I just started building and building and building and I do get a little obsessive. And suddenly I had like 30 <laughs> interviews and then I had 35 and then I thought, well, no one's going to have a story as good as this. And I'd started really early, which is really important. I started early enough that I could hand it into my editors like two months before the actual anniversary so we could design it. The other great thing that happened is I talked to Doug Herzog, who's such a wonderful guy. He was the head of Viacom and is no longer, but he had cut his teeth at MTV. Again, I, I'd come upon Doug Herzog because I saw in some old MTV book that he had been there like when MTV News started in the 80s. I wasn't calling him because he was the head of Viacom, but he really wanted to talk about this moment because it, it was nostalgic and, and important to him. And so at one point I said to Doug, Doug, I remember seeing this 90-second you know, news report on MTV about the one day they recorded together. You got anything else in the vaults? And he found like 15 or 20 minutes of unreleased footage from that day that no one had seen. And I oh, actually awesome. licensed. I said, that's could great. I license that for our piece? He said, sure. So I licensed it from him. And, um, you know, to do this book, I didn't write a book proposal. I had no plan of doing a book. But uh, one of the fellow at the publishing company who's really uh, who's no longer there, but has just like been so wonderful to me, David Rosenthal, um, he saw this. He saw the story. I actually told him about the story because I used him. I was trying to get to Kurt Loder. And I knew that David knew him. And so I told him that I was working on the story. And he said, oh, would that make a good book? I said, yeah, maybe. But I hadn't written any, like I hadn't written a proposal or anything. So it wasn't until after the story came out that he he came back and he said, I'd love for you to do a book. So that's that's how that came about. And then I just did what I did for the story, except it's not an oral history. It's a, a narrative. Um, but it just has lots. There's not anyone who you'd think of that isn't in there, you know? I can't wait to read it. Uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you about the podcast. Um, what is it like interviewing folks for the podcast versus how you interview uh, your profile subjects? How is that different? And have you had to sort of change it up uh, and learn a whole you know, new set of skills? Well, the podcast, the reason it works, I think, is because it is not a normal, it's not Mark Marin or, or, or Terry Gross. I'm not sitting talking to somebody. It's a 30-minute documentary-style profile of the subject, and I'm doing the same subjects that I'm writing about. And so I, the reason I thought of it is I just thought, there's so much amazing stuff going on here that I don't, I can't show in, 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 you know, on, on a page in the same way. What if we could also just record it? And so what I do is I have this digital recorder around my neck and I have these microphones, you know, for this Jimmy Kimmel story, I just put my microphones on his desk for the entire day and just left him there. There's like eight hours of, uh, you know, seven and seven hours and 20 minutes are completely blank. And then something interesting will be said. Um, and then I figured out how to record the phone interviews in a way that sound good. And we bring those in. And so it really is just a different way of telling a story 
but you're using the 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 beauty of it is you don't have to go back to these subjects and go hey david letterman I need to do a podcast now. You already have that material and you have that material in a way that's honest and like unvarnished. You don't have them thinking about it. They're just going about their day and doing their thing. Right. But you still have to, though, go back and take these snippets and put together in that 30 minute podcast. It's a new form of storytelling. that's very different from the profiles you write. Right. Well, we have to write a a script. Yeah, we have to. I mean, yeah, but, you know, it's it's a different way. And sometimes you tell it, it, you know, you write it down on paper and it doesn't sound good and you have to redo it. But I also have like, you know, WBUR has been working with us and they will assign an editor to me and they'll go through all that tape and and deal with it. And then we'll start working on the scripts. And it's a very different process. You're right. It's not isolated. You're not sitting there, um, coming up with like a specific lead you you might lead with just a cold open it's it is a different way of storytelling but you're taking the same material you know i don't know how you write but i when i'm working on a long piece have a tons of stuff and it's it's overwhelming and then i just keep moving things around and cutting them and and so in in some ways it, it works the same way as i do with writing it's just that the results are different you know and it's a more bare bones process in a sense, right? Because you have you have less time, you have less space. There's fewer quotes. Um, I mean, just the medium itself is far more confining than a profile. Yeah, it it is, and it, it, I always want it to be longer. But I got to say, like with Norm, I was with Norm and just carried that recorder with me when he went on Saturday, when he went on the Tonight Show, and no one. Car, like checked my ID and suddenly I was in the green room with Norm when Jimmy Fallon walked in and I was just holding my microphones out. It's not like I lied and didn't say who I was, but no yeah, one asked. Right. And suddenly I had this incredible moment. And the same thing I had, Norm had a gambling relapse while I was with him, sports gambling. And I just kept the microphone on, you know, and kept going. And I, I could have told that in my story and I, I didn't part, but in some way, that moment worked better audio-wise. So they're both really hard, I have to tell you. I mean, they're both... I just know how to write more <laughs> than I know how to make podcasts. So it's been much more of a learning experience, but they're both hard in their own ways. Yeah, I've had to write TV scripts uh, since joining ESPN, a number of them, and it is... I find it almost impossible. It's just so different. It's just, you know, you're writing conversationally, you're, I'm used to having a lot of space to describe things in detail, and you've got to really summarize things, complicated subjects often in you know a matter of 15 or 20 words. It, it, it's, it's hard. It's well, really, really hard. Well, if you watch Anthony Bourdain, which I do, you know, sometimes his script might just have, or, or even Ira Glass, every one of those, uh, or, you know, sound, it's on a piece of paper, which people don't realize, and they really do plot out how to speak uh, you know, when you're hearing it in a way that's so far, so much different than when you write it. I mean, when you write it, 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 you just can get away with so many more words and so much more language and you can't get away with making sounds basically, you know? Right. So it's, yes. it is a completely different way of writing. And I, I don't, I wouldn't know how to write for TV. Jeff, I really appreciate your time. And I want to thank you publicly too, for, uh, editing the Sunday long read back in January. Uh, you are first, uh, guest editor of 2018. You did a fantastic job. Um, I loved your opening uh, introduction as well. Um, Sort of talking, you know, not so much that it's a long form, but it's quality form. It's, you know, it's, it's great reads, not long reads necessarily. And just because something is long doesn't mean it's great. And, you know, there obviously can be great pieces that are not 
not long and uh, you know a, a good point that is often lost on people you know now it's now long form and long read has become the sort of um the term that we use um to describe quality but it's as you point out is and have reminded us it's not always that way right no i mean look there are some joke writers who are b- way better than anything i'd ever do so it's really <laughs> it, it, it's it's about i mean it's about writing well whatever you do I mean that's that's basically it, and I think we have gotten kind of hamstrung by these, um, you know, uh, it's natural by the you know here are our word limits, or if something's longer, it needs to be read by this editor. But you know the reality is um, there are plenty of super boring stories that are long, and there's plenty of super boring stories that are short, and plenty of great stories that are both lengths. So it's really it's just about what you do with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, I've really uh, appreciated your time, Jeff. Uh, keep up the great work. We'll keep reading and we'll keep listening to the podcast. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough for making time today. And thanks so much for having me. It really is an honor to be on here. I love the uh, uh, the stories that, I, that, that you share every week. Well, thanks, Jeff. I uh, really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you soon up in Concord. Yep. Our guest today is Jeff Edgers. Jeff is the Washington Post National Arts Reporter, where he has written about the decline of the electric guitar, profiled all sorts of folks, as we discussed, Letterman, Bill Murray, Norm MacDonald, Jay Leno. Uh, next year, Dutton will be publishing his book-length history of the Run DMC rap rock song, Walk This Way. Jeff is the host of the podcast series, Edge of Fame, a co-production of WBUR-FM, Boston's NPR station, and the Washington Post. I want to thank a few uh, phenomenal women, uh, colleagues of Jeff's who helped me prepare for the podcast today. Jessica Alpert is the managing producer of Modern Love, the podcast. Amy Argent Singer of the Washington Post, a features editor there, and Chris Christine Ledbetter, uh, the senior arts editor of the Washington Post. Thank you to all three of you. Uh, They had a lot of insight and great ideas for uh, our conversation today. My name is Don Van Natta. This is the Sunday Long Read Podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with another great guest very soon. See you soon. (laughs) 